Open your Bible, please, today. The subject is based upon John chapter 19. John chapter 19, and my subject is loyalty to Jesus. Loyalty to Jesus Christ. That's a very special title, and I'll tell you why in a few moments. The book of John, the gospel of John, chapter number 19, we'll begin reading in verse 38. Stand to your feet with me, please, if you will, this morning, John 19 and 38. And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him leave or permission. He came, therefore, and he took the body of Jesus. And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night. You remember that back in John 3. And he brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. Then took they the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes with the spices as the manner of the Jews is to bury Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. I've been there. It's about as far from Calvary to the garden tomb is about as far as from here to the back of our parking lot. It's not very far at all. It's very close. You You can look and see. And in the garden, there was a new sepulcher wherein was never man yet laid. And there laid they, Jesus Therefore, because of the Jews' preparation day, meaning the day before the Passover, a very holy day itself, they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the sepulcher was nigh at hand or nearby. Thank you, and you may be seated. Question. I want you to answer it in your own heart and in your own mind. Are you loyal to Jesus Christ? Are you loyal, in the fullest sense of that word, to the Lord Jesus Christ? I was reading this passage, and it occurred to me how loyal these men were in the face of what was happening there. And as I began to think about it, not particularly thinking at the moment I was having my morning Bible reading and prayer, As I thought about it, it occurred to me, I have never heard in my lifetime an entire message on the subject of loyalty to Jesus Christ. I've heard preachers preach on just about everything, and I've preached now here in this building about seven or 8,000 times, and I've never preached on loyalty to Jesus Christ. And so I began to look through my library. And I began to look through the commentaries, and I began to look in all the sources, and I went to the internet. I'll tell you, it was hard to find anything on the topic, loyalty to Jesus Christ. I even asked some people as I was going around just trying to get their perception, well, no, I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on loyalty to Christ. I said, I asked Jim Simon yesterday that, Uh, And Jim said, I guess we just assume people are loyal to Jesus. Ah, and there may be the problem that we just make an assumption that people are going to be loyal to the Lord Jesus Christ rather than to be intentional in it. The only thing I could recall about loyalty to Jesus Christ is an old song we used to sing in the churches that I attended called Loyalty to Christ. And it was a march tempo and sort of like the song that they sung, sort of upbeat. And the words went from over hill and plain, there comes the signal strain. Tis loyalty, loyalty, loyalty to Christ. Its music rolls along and the hills take up the song. Loyalty, loyalty to Christ. On to victory, on to victory, cries our great commander, on We'll move at his command, and we'll soon possess the land through loyalty, loyalty, yes, loyalty to Christ. 
But I thought maybe I ought to begin the message today just talking about loyalty as a vital character quality. And I hope when I'm through, you'll see why it is so important. And why I ask you, are you loyal to Jesus Christ? And uh, maybe this will help you renew your vows of loyalty. First of all, let's talk about loyalty just as a character quality, because it's such a vital character quality. Loyalty, according to the dictionary, is defined as steadfastness and faithfulness in the face of temptation to renounce, to desert, or to betray one's beliefs, one's family, one's friends, or country. It's, a, it's being steadfast and faithful when you want to turn or you want to denounce or desert or betray what you've always believed. There's a lot of pressure on you. Loyalty. The word loyalty is not in the King James Bible, but the idea is throughout the Bible in hundreds of places. Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 5, for example, talks about the character qualities that a Christian ought to seek to develop in his or her life. And it says, add to your faith, that would be your salvation. Add to your faith, and then it says virtue. Virtue comes from a Latin term, virtus. And virtus has the idea of being of having spiritual valor. That's a word we don't use much today, unfortunately. It has the idea, virtue has the idea of loyalty to your convictions and beliefs, of courage, of dedication, of devotion, of commitment, of strength. It has a lot of different concepts involved in it. Add to your faith, and the very first quality it says we ought to add to our faith is virtue, spiritual valor and spiritual strength, if you will. We value loyalty, though we don't think about it very often. For example, the highest honor that can be given in the United States to a citizen is the Congressional Medal of Honor. It's almost always given to someone in the military, and it's given because they risked their life. Or maybe they gave their life and it's given posthumously. For example, a man throws himself on a hand grenade that's been thrown into the foxhole and he is blown up while his buddies survive. And so he is awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor because of such a heroic and, uh, act, uh, and heroic action and because he's so loyal to other people. And you can go on and on thinking about this. And you know what concerns me as I begin to write notes and prepare and think about this subject and prepare to preach on it? In my opinion, there's been a precipitous decline in loyalty as a character quality in our country today. And I think I know why. Because we talk about it often. This is the, quote, me generation. We have turned the focus of everything to self. I went in a restaurant the other day, fast food restaurant, and they handed me a napkin, and on it it said, it's all about you. Well, I get tired of hearing that it's all about me. It really isn't all about me. I know that's a customer service slogan, but that's ridiculous. The world is a little bigger than I can put on my little pinhead. And I get tired of that emphasis, you know, you can have it your way. It's all about me. It's all about us. Well, we've raised a couple of generations of people with that kind of false uh, logic in their minds. And now, and I say this lovingly to the younger generation, that's all you've ever heard. And, and, and you have absorbed too much of that. It's not about you. It's about a big world out there and seven billion people. It's about family and it's about church and it's about country and it's about 
principles that we believe in of Christianity. It's about ideals. It's about values. It's about morals. There's a whole lot than just me going on in this universe today. But I mean, we've got a couple of generations that have been suckled on the mother's milk of that kind of philosophy now. And they don't have any idea what it's like, valor. Me, throw myself on a hand grenade to save somebody else? What about me? I can hear them. I can think through the reasoning process with them. And this focus upon self, making self the highest value. Stop. Think with me about that. Making self the highest value has absolutely destroyed the idea of loyalty. The emphasis today is on rights rather than responsibilities. The emphasis in our world today and in our culture is on freedom without any limits. Don't you try to restrict my freedom. If I want to kill my baby in the womb, I will, and it's none of your business. The baby has no rights. And I could go on and multiply the illustration. Chuck Colson was, is one of my favorite authors. Chuck Colson wrote extensively about this th- kind of thing. And Colson coined a phrase that I've not heard anybody else use. The phrase is radical individualism. Radical individualism. You know what individualism is, but he says we've hyped that. We've radicalized that. We've made it the sum and substance of life. That people's purpose in life is not about a broader view, but the purpose of so many people in our secular culture today is it's about the individual. I get to do what I want to do. But that's not loyalty. Loyalty is the president with his hand on the Bible and one in the air taking the oath of office that he will uphold the Constitution of the United States. Loyalty is the members of the armed forces who also, by the way, take that same oath that they will be loyal to the Constitution. Aren't you glad it's the Constitution? You see, here's the problem. If you're loyal to people, people change. And so what you were loyal to initially has now, the target has moved. And if you're loyal to institutions, they'll change. This is a very solidly fundamental church, doctrinally and spiritually grounded on the Word of God. Our highest value is the Word of God here. Now, If this church is like all other churches that have ever existed, you may come back here and visit in a hundred years if God allows, and if the church exists, and in a hundred years, I can promise you the church will probably have moved. You know, no church starts out as a liberal church. All churches start virtually as Bible-believing churches. Then they become liberal over over the time. And someday it's possible this church will be a liberal church. I hope not, but it's possible because institutions change. And if you ever come here and anybody denies the word of God, you get up and leave. Don't you be loyal to something that you think is such a way and has changed through the years. You walk out the door. In fact, you won't have to because I've already said I'll come back and get me a big five-gallon can of gas, and I'll take care of this problem one night. (laughs) Because a church doesn't exist to live that is not um, anchored on the Word of God, does it? So I'll just come and burn it down. You've never seen a spirit do that, but I'll come back. I'm going to haunt it when I leave here, okay? But at any rate, someday things could change. You be loyal to principles and to God's Word, not to things and institutions, first of all. As citizens, we show our loyalty. We stand and pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States and to the God and the country for which it stands. Loyalty is Nathan Hale, who was a Revolutionary War hero. He was actually a spy for America, but he was a part of the British, and he was caught And he was a devout Christian man, by the way. And they put the noose around his neck at the gallows. And they said, Mr. Hale, is there anything you would like to say before the sentence is carried out? 
And he straightened his shoulders and looked out at the crowd who had gathered. And Nathan Hale said these memorable words. I only regret that I have but one life to give for my country. That's loyalty. That's loyalty. Loyalty is Joseph down in the palace. Loyal to Potiphar, his boss, a general in the army. And when Potiphar's young, beautiful wife came by and attempted to seduce him, Joseph turned her down. And you're not always rewarded for loyalty. In fact, he was sent to prison for 12 years. But he was loyal, even so. Loyalty is David refusing to put his hand against King Saul when it was King Saul's intention to kill him. You would think he had a right to be disloyal, but not David. He said, I will not touch God's anointed. And he was standing there in a dark cave with the opportunity to take Saul's life. He said, I will never be disloyal to that man. Loyalty is the martyrs, tens of thousands and millions of them down through the centuries, who've been loyal to the Lord Jesus Christ. If it meant prison, if it meant the fire, if it meant beating, if it meant torture, it didn't matter what the price. I will be loyal to Jesus Christ. Loyalty is Richard Wormbrandt lying in the basement of the secret police building in Bucharest, Hungary during the days of the Iron Curtain. And they tied him down and interrogated him. And when he would not give them the answers that they wanted and renounce the Lord Jesus Christ because he was a preacher, they began to beat him. And then they tied him to a cross. And they said, let's see your Jesus deliver you now. But he wouldn't break. And then they urinated in his face. But he would not break. And he wrote a wonderful book called Tortured for Christ. And you ought to read it. It's a man who was loyal to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was nothing they could do to break him. Loyalty is Athanasius at the council. And they had this great council. And the great majority of the people said, Jesus Christ is not the Son of God. He is just a man. He was a good man, a prophet, a teacher, a martyr. And Athanasius said, no, he was the Son of God. And he was the most influential of the clergy, the preachers of his day. And they tried to break him. And a man stood and said, Athanasius, you're against the whole world. The whole world doesn't believe what you're trying to teach this council today. And Athanasius said, if the whole world is against me, then it is Athanasius against the world. That's the kind of man I can respect. That's the kind of man I can follow. That's the kind of hero that I want in my life. If it is the world against me, then it will be Athanasius against the world. Martin Luther, the reformer, said this, where the battle rages, there is where the loyalty of the soldier is proved. Where the battle rages, where the stress is the greatest, where there is no reward forthcoming, you're going to be loyal and you're probably not even going to be recognized for it. But that situation is where it's proven. Eugene Fields was the outstanding poet of uh, the 19th century here in America. And he wrote a classic poem. We used to memorize it in our school because I was quoting it around the house and Temple said, we memorized that when I was in third grade or something. I love the poem. It puts a lump in my throat when I read it because Eugene Fields described a little boy who he says one night the angels came and got him, meaning he died. He's a little toddler and he had placed his toys and then the little toys stay there through the years. And Eugene Fields pictures as if the toys could talk to one another that the toys are thinking and reasoning, and he writes his famous poem, a very great classic. 
as if he was visiting the room many years later, and it's called Little Boy Blue, not the one you're probably thinking about. The little toy dog is covered with dust, but sturdy and stanch he stands, and the little toy soldier's red with rust, and his musket molds in his hands. Time was when the little toy dog was new, and the soldier was passing fair. And that was the time when our little boy blue kissed them and put them there. Now don't you go till I come, he said, and don't you make any noise. And so toddling off to his trundle bed, he dreamed of his pretty toys. And as he was dreaming, an angel's song awakened our little boy blue. Oh, the years are many and the years are long, but the little toy friends are true. Ah, faithful to little boy blue they stand, each in the same old place, awaiting the touch of a little hand and the smile of his little face. And they wonder, as waiting those long years through, in the dust of that little chair, What has become of little boy blue since he kissed them and put them there? Loyalty, staying true year after year, day after day, when there is no reward, under stress, a great, great virtue. Now, there are two men in the Bible who demonstrated loyalty more than anybody else I know. And I read about them. I noted, I'm sure you noted that. One of them is called Joseph of Arimathea, and the other is Nicodemus. And why would I say that they're the most loyal of all? Because the disciples all fled. They left him. Now, I can make a case for John, who John took care of Jesus' mother, and perhaps he had left with Mary the scene of the cross by the time Christ had died. But Nicodemus and Joseph are my models for loyalty to Jesus Christ. Go with me to John chapter 3, and we'll look at Nicodemus, and then we'll look at Joseph for a moment. Very, very interesting stuff here that we don't often think about. John chapter 3, verse 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, Ruler of the the Jews means he was a member of the Sanhedrin or the council of 70 Jewish leaders that ruled the country under the Romans at the time of Christ. That he was on the council would mean that he was powerful. He had great, great influence in in the community and in the nation. And it also means he's wealthy. Now, I go down to verse number 10. After Jesus talks to him about the new birth and you must be born again with You're very familiar with that, but in verse 10, Jesus answered and said to him, Are you a master of Israel and knowest not these things? Now, the term master of Israel means that he is a teacher of great renown. It also means that he's an older man. He's probably in his 60s or 70s. And so he is a wealthy, highly respected, very intelligent leader, very, very influential man, older and known for his ability to teach the Scripture. As a rabbi, of course, he would have had a great knowledge of the Old Testament Scriptures. And he had been observing the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if you go back to verse 2 with me, the same man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God, for no man can do the miracles that you do except God be with him. So he had been watching, and he had seen all those crowds. He had seen those blind eyes opened. He had seen those lepers cleansed. He had seen those people that were totally out of control from demon control. And he had seen the Lord Jesus Christ touch them and change them. He had even perhaps seen and been an observer when the Lord Jesus Christ raised someone from the dead. And what he hadn't seen himself, he was at the top of the pecking order. He knew what was going on in the community. The rumors were flying everywhere, and he would have been tapped in. He would have known exactly what Jesus was saying and what Jesus was doing in his ministry there. 
And then I go back to Luke chapter 23 and pick up on Joseph and introduce him to you. Will you go with me there? Luke chapter 23, just back a few pages to the left in your Bible. And in Luke chapter 23 and verse 50, it tells me about Joseph. Behold, there was a man named Joseph, a counselor. Okay, that also means he is also a member of the council of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body under the Romans in that time. And he's a member of the council. By the way, over in the book of Mark, all four gospels carry this account. I just don't have time to read them all to you. But in Mark chapter, I think it's 15, it calls him an honorable counselor. So again, I understand this is a, this is a highly respected man. This is be like a man in the cabinet today in the United States uh, or, or in a high position of leadership uh, in the country. Now notice with me there what it says about him. He is a counselor, verse 50. He is a good man and a just man. He believes in righteousness and justice. And notice he is from Arimathea, which is very important, a city of the Jews. He lives somewhere in this city outside of Jerusalem. It's also called Ramah in the Old Testament and a number of places. And so he's from that. He's not from Jerusalem. He's not a native of the city of Jerusalem. Now, don't turn there necessarily, but if you go back to the Matthew account, Matthew chapter 27, it calls him a rich man. It points out especially that he's very wealthy, and it calls him a disciple of Jesus Christ, a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, in Luke chapter 23, verse 51, we didn't read that. The same had not consented to the counsel and deed of them, meaning the counsel. Sanhedrin. He was of Arimathea, a city of the Jews, and he also waited for the kingdom of God. Waiting for the kingdom of God is saying he believes that the Lord is going to come and send his Messiah, set up a, a divine kingdom upon the earth, and he's waiting for this. He's a man of faith. He believes that this is actually going to occur, and he is, in fact, anticipating this happening in his lifetime. Now go back with me to Matthew chapter 27. Turn backwards again. Matthew chapter 27 and uh, verse 57. Matthew 27, 57. Now when the evening was come, there came a rich man of Arimathea. That's what I'm saying that I just said to you, named Joseph. He was also himself one of Jesus' disciples, not one of the 12, but a disciple, a follower, a learner of, of Jesus Christ. He went to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. And then Pilate commanded that the body be delivered to him. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher and he departed. So notice with me these two men, Nicodemus and Joseph. The first thing they did is both of them stood up for Jesus in the council. In Luke 23, 51, it said that he didn't consent to what was happening in the council, meaning he opposed it. The vote came. We're going to get this man, Jesus, and we're going to whatever the, the punishment that, that they determined to do with him. He said, no, I won't vote for that. He defended Jesus Christ in front of that council. And then over in John chapter 7, it says about Nicodemus that he also reasoned with the council and said to them, why are you condemning Jesus Christ? We haven't even heard from this man yet. Our law doesn't permit us to condemn a man that we've not even interrogated and interviewed yet. Both of them stood up. Now stop. This is like a man in the legislature. This is like a man in the city council. This is like a man or a woman in the, in the cabinet of the president of the United States. And everybody else votes unanimously for an issue. And this man stands up, no. And he defends Jesus Christ. And he's the only one, one of two out of 70 that's doing it there. That takes courage. 
That's loyalty. That is real loyalty. He's, they both of them began by standing up for him in the council. But now we go back to the book of John, chapter 19, where we started. Now's the time to stand up. Now's the time to lay it all on the line. Now this is when loyalty is going to be tested in these two men. Now the time had come. And Jesus had dropped his head on his chest and said, it is finished. And immediately Nicodemus and Joseph go to Pilate. Important men, so they have an entree into Pilate. They didn't need an appointment. Pilate, we're here. That Jesus that you just crucified out here on the hill of Golgotha, he has no family to claim his body. We don't want him cut down and dropped in a pit like you usually do with criminals. We want to take his body and bury it. We've made preparation for it. Pilate said, it's okay with me. means nothing to me. A dead Jew, no big deal to me. And so up to this point, up to this point, the Bible said they had been secret disciples. Secret disciples. They had believed, but they hadn't made it public. They had hidden their affection and their love and loyalty for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now they come out. To ver- for them to even go to Pilate, this Roman general, in the middle of what he thought might be the beginning of an insurrection by Jesus' followers, because you can see how they secured the tomb. He was anticipating trouble, a rebellion breaking out. For them to even go and talk to Pilate and request that body was to risk their life. To stand up in the council was to, re- was to risk their friendships, to be alienated, to be separated from the, the social structure that both of them would have enjoyed. And they had feared up until now the loss of position and their prestige and acceptance by other people. and Perhaps they feared a loss of income if they went to him. Perhaps they feared that some of their friends would turn against them and their own popularity would diminish their poll poll would go down, their polling would go down as politicians. Didn't matter. They laid it all on the line. What was the basis of their loyalty? Well, one, they had studied the evidence over the months of Jesus' ministry. And they become convinced that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah that he said he was. They heard his words. And people said, nobody ever spake like this man. No, and he, nobody ever had. And then Nicodemus had that interview with him late at night. Listen to his words again. Rabbi, no man could do the things that you do if he were not from God. I've watched you with these miracles. I am convinced that you are the Messiah that we've been looking for. Both of them, being members of the council, would have known all the Old Testament prophecies that he would be born in Bethlehem. They'd check that out. They knew that he would live in Galilee. They'd check that out. All these prophecies are coming together now, and they see it because they had studied the evidence. They knew that he would be crucified, in fact, in the conversation with Nicodemus. What did Jesus say? You have to be born again, Nicodemus. Well, I don't know what that means. I I can't go back in my mother's womb and be born. No, you can't. But it means you have to trust in me. Because you see, like Moses put that serpent upon that pole. You remember that story, Nicodemus, back in the book of Numbers? Oh, yeah, I've studied that my whole life. I'm a rabbi. Well, Nicodemus, just as they lifted up the serpent on the pole, the Son of Man will be lifted up. I will be lifted up to heal the sins of the people forever. 
like that brass serpent that day healed the bite of those serpents. They knew Isaiah 53, that when Messiah would come, he would be wounded for our transgressions. He would be bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace would be upon him. With his stripes, we will be healed. Yeah, he's the one. The prophecies, his words, his deeds, his miracles, his crucifixion. Now, a lot of scholars believe this, and I think I do too after a few weeks of study on it. I believe that they had prepared that tomb. Here's the deal. All my life, I've heard preachers say that uh, Joseph was prepared. He had prepared that tomb for himself, and and he, he lent it to Jesus Christ. I no longer believe that. I believe he bought that tomb and hewed that tomb for this very occasion for Jesus Christ. I'll tell you why. If you'll study the background in, among the Jews, every Jew's desire was to be, to be buried in his hometown. His tomb would have been back in Arimathea. He's a rich man. What did he want a tomb for in Jerusalem? Especially, why did he want a tomb 200 yards away from the site where they crucified all the criminals? That'd be, that'd be like buying a grave plot 200 yards away from where they executed criminals in America. You wouldn't want that. And every Jew was buried in his hometown. He bought that tomb for Jesus. He spent a lot of money on that tomb because did you notice three times it said it was hewn out of stone? By the way, he didn't buy it last week either because it'd take you weeks and months to hew, hew a tomb out of stone. He'd been preparing. He'd been spending a huge amount of money, and he was ready. He knew the Messiah would come and die, and he would take care of it. Loyalty. Loyalty to Jesus Christ. Many believe that they actually hid in the tomb and watched the crucifixion because immediately they go to Pilate and they claim the body. And so now the time has come. They risk their position in the Sanhedrin. They risk their money. They've already spent money on the preparation. They have eliminated themselves from participation in the Passover because now they're ceremonially unclean for seven days. They can't take the Passover, which no Jewish male would have ever done that in those days. And they risk their very life going to Pilate. My, what loyalty. The two men more loyal to Jesus Christ than even the twelve. Joseph and Nicodemus. And I read that, and my loyalty is challenged. My own loyalty is challenged. You see, in a secular culture like you and I are living in, our loyalty is going to be challenged every day. We're almost like Athanasius as Christians in America. Then it's us against the world. I'm sorry, but that's, that's the truth. And every day I have to check my heart and my values and my beliefs and my convictions. Is my first loyalty to Jesus Christ, to the Scripture, to truth, even when the winds are all blowing in the other direction and most of the people that of our country and maybe even most of my friends are going a different direction, will I stand with Jesus? It challenges my loyalty 
By the way, with what's happening in our nation, I expect it to be even more challenged in the future. My question to you when I open the message, are you loyal to Jesus Christ? Search your heart. You know what above everything else compel their loyalty? The cross. To see him hanging there for them, pouring out his life's blood, moaning, bleeding, dying, thirsting. And yet he never turned back, did he? And when he was on the cross, you were on his mind. The challenge of my life, will I be as loyal to him as he has been to me? Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.